Well, I have to say, it is always a red-letter day when Dan Kamen comes by to uh, talk about Charlie Chaplin. And here you are, Dan. Thanks for stopping by. It's a wet, rainy day, and uh, you made it. It's a lovely day in Pittsburgh. A lot of weather we've been having. <laughs> a lot of weather we've been having. <laughs> Tell our folks the the uh, reference to that. Oh, that's from a Laurel and Hardy movie, Way Out West. He's trying, uh, Oliver Hardy's trying to impress a woman who's very impatient, sitting next to him in a stagecoach. And he says, a lot of weather we've been having lately. <laughs> and he twiddles his tie. <laughs> and it, it's such a non sequitur. You know, you have to think about it twice to realize it's complete nonsense. Right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But what you have, of course, is not nonsense at all. Once again, you have a live film event, and uh, you're featuring Charlie Chaplin. Tell me a little bit about what you plan to do on at the Harris Theater uh, on, I believe it's September 29th, yes? That's right, which okay. is National Silent Movie Day, declared in Pittsburgh last year by film historian and promoter, silent film promoter, Chad Hunter, uh, and it's gone nationwide. It's all over the country. People, And we have three events. Uh, I'll do my Miracle on 34th Street uh, bit. Uh, mine is one of three events. It'll be, there'll be other silent films, including Don Juan showing at the... Um, at the uh, the one in Lawrenceville, what's that? The uh, the Row House Cinema, right? And uh, uh, Jump Jump Cut Theater is showing uh, Nazimova uh, Nazimova Ala Nazimova's uh, film uh, called um, uh, Salome, based on Oscar Wilde's poem, a very strange silent film, mm-hmm. but fascinating. And I'll be doing Charlie Chaplin's Red Letter Days, and uh, this is a film about how Charlie Chaplin risked his reputation, his fame, and his fortune by making a film about World War I while the bloody conflict was still happening. A comedy about a war that was still in progress. And, I mean, I was looking at your um, promo of the uh, Red Letter Days and how he was actually... You know, people enjoyed the fact that he was making comedy, but there were those that wanted him hung, that wanted him arrested, wanted him to stop doing this. They, they didn't want him to stop doing comedy. As a British citizen, uh, first of all, he came here. Uh, he, he'd been here for uh, about touring for four years before he started making movies, and he started making movies in 1914. And uh, around the end of his first year, middle of the first year, August, the war started. And also his fame exploded worldwide by then. The films were going all around the world. He was, he, he, now celebrity is a glut on the market, but at the time, this was the first, these were the first, he was one of the first stars minted by this new medium where there were no language barriers whatsoever. And he was not just famous at, uh, at the time worldwide. He was literally, he had become the most famous person who had ever lived in history simply because there were no limits. Any, any country that had electricity had the movie technology, which had been developed in the early years, late years of the 19th century, early 20th century. And by 1914, movies were in the process of replacing theater, replacing vaudeville as the predominant entertainment medium of the century. Uh, of the times, and Chaplin and American stars, partially because of World War One, uh, rose to the top uh, because <laughs> they were busy fighting in Europe, and and so the literally the laughter, the world exploded with laughter, and shortly after, 
the bombs exploded of World War One, and because he was a British citizen, um, there was a big movement of, to have conscription, which wasn't initially there, by a sort of mogul, a media mogul named Lord Northcliffe, who owned, he was a Rupert Murdoch of the Times, he owned the London Times, he owned the Daily Mail, the big newspapers, and he decided, possibly because it was good, good for... Um, circulation, like William Randolph Hearst promoting, uh, you know, the Spanish-American War here, um, that all Britons should be fighting in in the effort. And there was no conscription, nor was there a, a, a requirement that expatriate Brit, Brits who had gone elsewhere in the world come back. However, he started waging a campaign against Charlie Chaplin, as a result of which Chaplin was flooded with letters Mostly there were fan letters, but there were also letters with white feathers, which women were giving to anybody on the street they would meet in Britain, any man who's not in uniform. It, of course, meant chicken. You're a coward, um, and you're, a, you're a, a traitor. And some of the letters were accompanied by death threats because he was not over there doing his part. And Lord Northcliffe said, sure, he's, he's, he's helping to, with the morale some, but wouldn't it be better for morale if he was in the trenches fighting? And that's a legitimate argument that you could have made. Um, however, the, so the program the, it deals with the fact that he was in this bliss of artistic success and accomplishment at the same time as the, there was this nagging thing uh, happening that uh, he was getting death threats because he wasn't fighting. Um, and uh, to document it, I have things, I found things like there was, there was a London Illustrated News with uh, pictures of hospital, people in bed who couldn't even sit up in hospitals, and on the ceiling they're projecting the latest Charlie Chaplin film and everybody is laughing because they were so, he was the funniest guy on the planet. He was the funniest person, quite literally, again, given the global scale of it, the funniest person. He created more laughter than anybody in history, and it's not, there's no question about that before or since. Do you suppose, is there, are there any personal reflections about his not participating in the war that uh, you have come across? Oh, there are lots of them. Uh, you know, one... Uh, because he had his defenders, even some of <laughs> Lord Northcliffe's own editorial writers, you know, were saying, no, he's he's better off, uh, you know, making everybody laugh and giving them something to, to cheer about. You know, you didn't have to um, even na name a film to fill a theater in 1915, 16, 17. You'd put a cutout up. And some of those cutouts were hijacked and appeared in the trenches. The soldiers would take them. They would make scarecrows in Charlie Chaplin's image. Uh, and they would march to... A song about Charlie Chaplin going to war, uh, uh, because the cartoonists and and writers were quick to imagine how wonderful it would be if Charlie Chaplin was at war, turning it into comedy, uh, may, maybe making the Germans laugh so much that they would they would give up the ridiculous, as we all hope would happen now with the Russians. You know, come to your senses. What what does it take? What does it take exactly? Now you have um, a number here, I believe, that uh, you just referenced. Which one is that? This is called When the Moon Shines Bright on Charlie Chaplin. It was adopt adapted for an, from an American popular song, uh, and it, it's, it's a song about Charlie Chaplin going to war. And his little baggy trousers, they want mending before we send him to the Dardanelles. When the moon 
sunshine, Frank from Charlie Chaplin. His boots are cracking for want of blanking. And his little baggy trousers, they want mending before we send him to the Dardanelles. Oh, my goodness. The moon shines bright on Charlie Chaplin. And in 1915, the Dardanelles battle, which lasted almost a year, was still raging, and it was a bloodbath. And, uh, you know, th- 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 half a million troops were involved. Uh, you know, there were many, many deaths among them, uh, th- tens of thousands of deaths. It was a disaster, uh, and in charge of it was the naval uh, leader at the time, Winston Churchill. It was a thing he had to overcome to continue his career because it was a, a stunning military disaster, as was so much about World War I. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I read the uh, wonderful history of World War I by Barbara Tuckman called um, The Guns of August, and it made, makes it very clear how it was a parade of, of, of folly and incompetence from beginning to end, and many of the participants spent the rest of their lives afterwards. I mean, the generals in charge of the and politicians defending and lying about what they had actually done that uh, did or didn't uh, result in the, the tremendous disasters and loss of life and nightmare that, that essentially all war is, of course. Of course. So when people attend on uh, Thursday, the 29th, uh, what can they expect to see and hear from you? Well, it's an odd hybrid, and I'm so glad that we're getting to talk about it together because when you go to a movie theater, you expect only to see a movie. Uh, and this is as much a, not a movie, it's as much a live presentation, fully illustrated with images, music like this, uh, that leads up to your seeing that movie that he made about World War One. It's a restored, literally, I've had people all over the world, film archives and master editors and restoration experts, uh, cobbling together a version of this film that is very close to what people saw in 1916, in 1918 when the movie came out, uh, because uh, the original negatives would wear out of these old films. You know, 80%, 70-80% of silent films are gone because of that. Uh, The the original negatives were the ones used to make the prints. Uh, They didn't have the technology at the time, really, to to go to make a, a separate negative to produce the prints. So when the negatives got scratched or the sprocket holes got damaged, that was it. They had to go to alternate footage. And that's what happened when Charlie went to re-release this film and later, you know, he did a major re-release of it with his own musical soundtrack um, in, in the late 50s. And he had to use outtakes, basically. This is not outtakes. This is the 1918 footage um, restored, uh, beautifully restored, and people will be stunned by the photographic quality of it. Well, I was so stunned when uh, we saw the kid and it was fully restored and uh, a celebratory uh, showing of that. And then the fact that you're there talking about it and taking us ever deeper into the material. Uh, and that sounds like what's going to be happening uh, on September 29th. Even more so, Anna, because the kid program was really we showed the, fi- the film, film first. Mm-hmm. So it, it needs no explanation. It's, it's so it holds up so well. This program, uh, the film is really shown last, and uh, in, at the beginning, I, you know, we've just all seen so many war comedies, Hogan's Heroes, uh, you know, MASH, 
uh, Doctor Strange loved hundreds of them. We've all seen some of them TV series and some of them over and over because they're classics. And they, they keep getting made, many war films and many war comedies. Um, uh, but so we're seeing Shoulder Arms, the name of this film, through a haze of these other things. It was an astonishing breakthrough. It was unprecedented when it happened. And to put it in context, as we're doing a little bit here, um, I really want the audience, I challenge the audience to look at the humble artifacts of popular culture, such as a penny postcard with a cartoon of Charlie, uh, and find out what, uh, decipher, decode, uh, unpack, as we'd say today, um, what's the joke? Uh, much more so than with the kid, where I just wanted to show the film and kind of do a talk on it, uh, and there was a little Q and A. But it, this this program is very interactive. Mm -hmm. The audience, and I want people to use their thinking caps because it takes that to imagine yourself back in 1918 before you can understand the reaction that audiences had at the uh, premiere of Shoulder Arms. Uh, it was a game changer for the movie industry, and it has eerie. Uh, connections with our own time. They're, one of the things I'll show is a letter from a, a, an open letter to Charlie Chaplin that, that a film that appeared in a film distributor magazine, uh, the people who own movie theater trade magazine for the film industry, thanking Charlie Chaplin because Shoulder Arms was so good that despite the government efforts to get people to stay at home because of the pandemic, they risked their lives to pack the theaters to see it. How's that for this wow. eerie confluence of, yes. of times? Things change and things stay the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And history repeats itself 100 years later. One of the things about Charlie Chaplin is that he did write a lot of music. And um, you have a little bit of a song here that uh, Arlo Guthrie is singing. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, Chaplin spent the last 20 years of his life writing music to accompany his old films and every new film that he was making during his last 20 years. Um, but he, he wrote music all his life. He was fascinated with music. He, there's a picture of him on tour in about 1910 or 11 in America, and he's schlepping a cello case and a violin case. He could play the violin quite well uh, by ear, everything by He never learned to read music. And he played piano, and he would he would write when sound came in, the first sound picture he made was City Lights in 1931, and the audience was startled to read in the opening credits that the music for City Lights was written by none other than Charlie Chaplin. Uh, and, but he kept doing it. And this song is was, was very interesting. Your readers, your, your, your listeners <laughs> um, won't have heard it because it never made it. He died before he made the movie. Uh, that it was to accompany. Uh, it was for a movie that was would would have been called The Freak, and this recording of it, 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 it somebody wrote lyrics to it, uh, and Arlo Guthrie picked up on it and and recorded it for his album that he made in 2007, I think, called In Times Like These. My love, you are the song that sings inside of me, the song is always the same, it starts with love and 
ends with your name The more that I love you There's more in you to love And yet I just don't know I could love you more than I do right now They say that love grows cold But our love turned to gold You kissed my sorrows away You touched my heart What more can I Each day my life is new For God blessed me with you And when my life is all through Without a word You always knew that all my life My life was you. Arlo Guthrie with You Are the Song, written by Charlie Chaplin. What a wonderful, the lyrics are amazing. What a beautiful tune. And I think it embodies, uh, Anna, the, 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 the real core essence of Charlie Chaplin in that uh, what, makes him, what makes him timeless, what mm-hmm. makes these films, what makes Shoulder Arms and other films he made still funny over 100 years later is that he is going for the gut. His films are very primal, and in Shoulder Arms, he's he does not sugarcoat the horrors of the war. The comedy is about what everybody was finding out about by 1918, which was the conditions were astonishingly filthy. Uh, he, his first One of his first jokes in it is he goes into the trench and he nails up a cheese grater and scratches his back, which seems like just an incongruous, you know, comfort thing now to an audience. But the reason I want to put this into context for people, I mean, I won't, I won't, <laughs> I won't reveal that before the fact, but afterwards I'll talk about with the audience, is because everybody knew that was all about the fact that the trenches were in, infested with lice. Everybody got lice who was in those trenches. Everybody got athlete's foot or what they called trench foot in those days because they were flooded. And he he he's he's found he finds comedy about these horrid specific instances of the uh, of that make the war so vivid, and yet he turns it into something you can laugh at. And the people laughing the hardest were the soldiers when they saw it. Wow, Red Letter Days, a live and film event with Dan Kamen, and it's going to be presented on Thursday, September 29th, which is now Silent Movie Day. Uh, proclaimed here in National Silent Movie Day. Yes, begun in Pittsburgh. Begun in Pittsburgh. I just love it. He's going to tell the incredible story of how Charlie Chaplin risked fame, fortune, and reputation by making a comedy about World War I. Remind me, Dan, what is it about Charlie Chaplin just just tugs at your heartstrings? Well... When I saw him, uh, I was a student at Carnegie Mellon. We had a great film series in those days, and I saw my first Charlie Chaplin movie there. 
And I thought it was the funniest movie I'd ever seen. It was called The Gold Rush, and it was about the Donner Party expedition, <laughs> where, where, where Which prospectors, is so funny. yeah, well, you know, prospectors oh who got stranded in the snow in the 1840s and eventually ate their shoes and each other to survive. And he thought, what a great idea for a comedy. But it was. It was a. Fu- but I realized, you know, this is a film. I didn't think about it in those ways. Uh, the, when I ask people about what, what's the gold rush about, people don't get how primal it is because mm-hmm. essentially it's about starvation, desperation, uh, hunger, food, clothing, and shelter is what it's about. You don't get more primal than that because you're thinking of all the, the humor of it that he's made out of it. But mainly what got me was how he was beset by all these incredible challenges and the elan with which he survived them, the the ingenious survival strategies, coping strategies, and he just seemed like the coolest person I'd ever seen. And I literally started carrying my umbrella, as I have today, and since then I've always used a long umbrella because it seemed to take on a life of its own. I would tap it rhythmically on the sidewalk as I was walking on the campus and twirl it around, and I just wanted to be as cool as he was. It was simple envy. It was He just seemed like the most, um, he was, he seemed to be a person in a state of grace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you've made a complete life study of him and, um, you've had, you've been on films with, uh, and now I, of course his name escapes me completely. Robert Downey Jr. When he played Chaplin, you were there as a consultant and teaching him how to become Chaplin. I taught him how to walk like Charlie oh Chaplin. I taught, I taught Charlie Chaplin how to walk. How's that? <laughs> uh, and, you know, but my, uh, uh, it sounds like, because every time I'm on your show, I'm talking about Chaplin uh, and a Chaplin event. And I've developed three programs specifically about four, because one of them I do with full symphony orchestra. Um, uh, but really, mostly what I do, as many of your listeners I hope will know, is is I perform my own shows. To me, the my uh, being so inspired by Chaplin was uh, the injunction was I had a dream where he's just looking at me very sternly early on says don't imitate me if you like what I do you find you find your it in yourself yeah. you find your jokes mm-hmm. and astonishingly I you know have been able to make a living by creating my own characters and jokes and finding different content you don't make silent films anymore but I somehow found a way to do silent film kind of comedy on stages in shows with symphony orchestras, turning them into comedy, which is very satisfying because, of course, the comedies were always accompanied by symphony orchestras. Any big theater like the Stanley, mm-hmm. uh, the, I mean, the, the the predecessor of the Benedict, right, uh, right. Uh, you know, they were. You would hear a full symphony orchestra playing. Uh, from 11 in the morning till midnight, uh, mm-hmm. you know, accompanying these enormously popular, the new art form, this, you know, that allowed the movie palaces to be built bigger than you could have. Palaces, for, truly. Yeah, but you mm-hmm. didn't need to, you know, you, you had the amplification, you had the full orchestra, so you, you they, they were beyond the scale, you know, that a vaudeville performance could happen in, mm-hmm. you know, there was, so um, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And I owe a lot of it to Charlie Chaplin. So these programs are really my thank you note to him. That is truly awesome. Smile, though your heart is breaking. Smile, even though it's aching. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. 
for you Light up your face with gladness Hide every trace of sadness Although a tear may be ever so near That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll see that life is still worthwhile If you just smile Lady Gaga, and I think she sent that out um, during the pandemic, right? There was a, a thing called, uh, it was called Together at, uh, One World Together at Home. It was uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, and mm -hmm. she she's in her home playing her piano herself, and it's a video, and I think it's one of the best renditions of this song ever because so often it becomes this sort of sappy thing mm -hmm. and it, it people think oh charlie chaplin is so sentimental in england they don't like him as much as they like buster keaton because of the what they perceive as a sentimentality but it's not sentimental at all it's 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 about powerful emotion and the way she captures the whimsy and the humor of chaplin and that makes this one of the best ever in my view renditions of this tune it's a great, great uh, tune. Nat King Cole really made it famous mm -hmm. when he did his version of it. And it's from the soundtrack of his film, Modern Times. It's, it's the love theme from that film. He never put it to words. He, when it was released, somebody said, you know, this is a nice tune. Why don't we see if we can get somebody interested in singing it? And <laughs> the people interested in singing it was, were virtually every major vocalist of the of, uh, it was this came out in 1954 mm -hmm. uh, and it's been covered by virtually everybody. well we have at least 25 recordings in the classical music library with violinists and um, harpists and flutists who have recorded it yeah it's amazing and mm -hmm. and he always worked with musical collaborators and he got accused of just sort of leeching off them and they're really the composers because he couldn't read music and yet there's a different collaborator on every film, mm -hmm. and the music all sounds the same. So that's the proof in the pudding. Uh, you know, it, it, you you hear that uh, that touching the style. Mm -hmm. You know, that touching and beautifully melodic uh, consistency in all of his music. And you will hear that with the shoulder arms because we'll hear his soundtrack for it as part of this program uh, due to due to the uh, expertise of uh, my my uh, editorial. Com compatriot who's put this together for me. Wonderful. Dan Kamen, don't miss it. Charlie Chaplin's Red Letter Days. It's a live and film event that takes place at the Harris Theater, and that will be on Thursday, September 29th, beginning at 7.30. And all of that information can be, sa be found on our QED cultural calendar, and we'll have this wonderful uh, blog up, uh, video, not, uh, let's see, audio blog up on our Voice of the Arts podcast uh, as soon as possible. Dan, it's always a true pleasure to see you, and I learned so much. Well, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That, that <laughs> it's always a pleasure to be to be here talking with you as well, Anna. Thank you so much for having me again. Thank you.